0: We bid you welcome, also our listeners, we bid you welcome, praying that the Lord of peace himself give you his peace no matter what happens, no matter what today is like. The Lord, the Lord be with you. We're continuing in Matthew chapter 19 at the 23rd verse because after the young ruler had left grieving, he was grieving that he couldn't give up his own way of living in order to receive salvation, as is recorded in Matthew, also chapter 19, verses 16 through 22. And the Lord told his disciples, in verse 23, because of this, Verily I say unto you, that a rich man shall hardly enter into the kingdom of heaven. It's almost impossible for a rich man to get into the kingdom of heaven. So right after this meeting with the young ruler, with the young man, the Lord had a talk with his disciples about riches, about wealth. As we see in the verses 23 through 26... And also about rewards, as we find in the verses 28 through 30. And the conversation with the rich young man led to those lessons for the disciples. Now the Lord did not condemn or ridicule this young Jewish religious leader. In Mark 10 verse 21 it reads that Jesus beholding him looked at him and loved him and the Lord's attitude seemed to be don't judge him too sharply because he's still young but at the same time he warned his disciples how hard it is for the rich and wealthy to enter the kingdom of heaven and of course it's not a sin to be rich and it can be good for many causes Paul teaches Timothy that. We find in 1 Timothy chapter 6 to verses 6 through 9 from the New International Version, he writes, Godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. But then also... He writes, those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. To be determined and setting our minds on getting as much wealth and property at any cost is not only senseless, Is dangerous because if that love of money starts filling our hearts, starts filling our souls, our actual being can no longer come under the rule of God anymore because our greed then took the place of God in our hearts. And where are we then? Folks like that as a rule will start doing all kinds of immoral things. Things that would have horrified that person had they not become a slave to money or rather a slave to the love of money. Scripture warns against loving money. You probably know Scripture, this one, First 1 Timothy 6 verse 10 from the New International Version. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. And just look around you. There aren't many rich, not many great people that are from their hearts and souls Christians. John F. Walford in Matthew, Thy Kingdom Come, writes, in contrast to the prevailing opinion of the Jews who thought their riches thought they, they were gaining favor with God, that through their riches, they would start gaining favor with God, and Jesus pointed out that riches often are a stumbling block rather than a stepping stone for those entering the kingdom. And the Lord added, and now as an example, in verse 24, And again I say unto you, It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. And Stanley M. Horton in the Complete Biblical Library writes, A camel going through the eye of a needle is pure overstatement suggesting the impossibility of something and he writes the verses 25 and 26 confirm this further any interpretation suggesting that the eye of a needle is a small door or a gate to a city or that camelon came camel that that might be a scribal error for the word Cable that is come a loss, only designed to, to soften the pointedness of this saying. In any event, he writes, salvation is a miracle of grace, whether for the rich or the poor. And then J. Vernon McGee embroiders more on this subject, which in McGee style is always entertaining. And this from through the Bible, he writes, Many people missed the humor that our Lord sometimes used. And this passage is an example of it. There are some people who hold to the ridiculous explanation that there was a gate in Jerusalem called the eye of the needle. That a camel had to kneel to pass through it and that, that therefore the Lord was saying that a man had to become humble to enter the kingdom of heaven. Well, McGee writes, that misses the point altogether. Our Lord is talking about a real camel and a real needle with an eye. My friend, he writes, let me ask you a very plain question. Is it possible for a real camel to go through the eye of a needle? I think you know the answer, he won't make it. It's impossible. But it would be possible for God to put a camel through a needle's eye, could he? Well, God is not in that business, but he could do it. And only God could regenerate a man. That is the point the Lord is making here. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Many people today think that they are going to be saved by who they are or by what they have. You're truly saved when you find out that you are a sinner, a beggar in God's sight with nothing to offer him for your salvation. As long as a person feels he can do something or pay God for salvation, he can no more be saved than a camel can be put through the eye of a needle. In R.C.H. Lenski, in the Interpretation of St. Matthew's Gospel, he also points out that Talmud used an elephant in the same situation as Jesus did. And some have taken the needle's eye to be a reference to a small, low gate into a walled city requiring one entering to take off his load and crawl through the hole on his knees. John F. Walford, in Thy Kingdom a commentary on the first gospel, writes, like the reference to the blind guides, as in Matthew 23, verse 24, who strain at a gnat and swallow a camel, he was illustrating the Lord was that that which is impossible to do naturally Jesus wasn't saying simply that it is difficult for a rich man to be saved. What he was saying was that it takes a miracle, a supernatural work of God. This is clear in the comment of Jesus in answering the disciples' question, who then can be saved? And the Lord stated, with men, This is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Matthew 19, verse 26, that was. The new birth is an act of creation. It is not something that comes naturally or easily. This was John F. Walford. And perhaps you you wondered, the expression, the kingdom of God, the Lord uses in verse 24, is different from the usual expression, the kingdom of heaven. And it seems that the kingdom of God refers here to having to do with the sphere of salvation, not the sphere of profession, because a rich man could profess or even boast. Be a follower of Christ, but away from supernatural grace, there is no way he could enter into salvation. And the reaction of the disciples showed that because of this, they thought the conditions for salvation were impossible to fulfill, and they probably weren't only thinking of the rich young man or of people in general, but of themselves too. Verse 25, when his disciples heard it, they were exceedingly amazed, saying, who then can be saved? Verse 26, but Jesus beheld them. He looked at them and said unto them, with men this, which is salvation, Is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Salvation is a work of God, not of people, not of you, not of me, not of people, but of God. And the mistake the rich young man made was that he thought he could find and get salvation by his own doing. But the way to eternal life is through Christ and has nothing to do with our efforts but hinges only on God's grace. And when we turn to God, we find out that the power of God is greater than the power of wealth or riches and that nothing is impossible with God. Now, the disciples had left everything behind to follow the Lord in his ministry. They had left their jobs, their homes, which led to Peter's question. We find in verse 27, Then answered Peter and said unto him, Behold, we have forsaken all and followed thee. What shall we have, therefore? A reasonable question, practical too. And the Lord answered that when the Son of Man shall sit in the throne of his glory, as verse 28, ye also shall sit upon twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Now, this is clearly a picture of the millennial earth, not heaven. C. Gablin in the Gospel of Matthew explains, this was a specific promise to the twelve disciples only. In the kingdom, during the millennium, during the reign of Christ Jesus over the earth, the disciples will hold the glorious position in connection with the government of the earth through Israel and next to the Lord Jesus Christ on his throne, the twelve together will occupy twelve thrones. And this kingdom... That is still postponed as far as human expectation is concerned, will be fulfilled following the Lord's return. Verse 28 And Jesus said unto them, Verily I say unto you, that ye which have followed me in the regeneration, when the Son of Man shall sit in the throne of his glory, ye also shall sit upon 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. The regeneration the Lord spoke about is also called the renewing of the world, the renewing of the inhabited, the populated world, and in fact is the world's rebirth In the Messianic Kingdom. It will be a restoration that will take place at the end of this age, and a new world order will be brought in after the judgments that the Lord will pronounce, where the stone that Daniel saw smashing the current world order, and telling Nebuchadnezzar, remember, of Babylon, as we find in Daniel 2, verse 34, thou sawest till a stone was cut out without hands, which which smote the image upon his feet that were of iron and clay, and break them to pieces." a new world order a regeneration the same word that is used for regeneration of a redeemed a born again person palingenesia the definition is as said regeneration but also renewal a birth which really is the work of the Holy Spirit as we read in Titus 3 verse 5 not by works of righteousness which we have done which we have done but according to his mercy he saved us by the washing of regeneration or a translation could be the bath of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost. The Lord speaks here of regeneration, which brings us into dispensational teaching. At that time of regeneration, when all things will be made new, will be made over, when our groaning creation, as we know it today, will be delivered And the reign of the evil one and sin will end. The prophets talked about this. They wrote about it too. This regeneration is not happening yet, and it cannot happen as long as the Lord Jesus does not occupy his throne of glory. And this will not happen until his fellow heirs are with him. Because everything will develop in its order. You see, there will be a completion of the church of all those who are to be part of the church up to the last person then there will be a rapture of the church to meet the Lord in the air. Then after the Lord's return with his saints from glory, then his own throne, which he then will occupy, and then afterwards, the regeneration will follow, So we see that the Lord had a whole new world order in mind where even the good things of this world as we see it now still are going to be destroyed and will go, will disappear so as to bring in the better things of the kingdom. And then also the twelve disciples will share the Lord's throne and Rule over or judge the twelve tribes of Israel. The word for to judge here is the Greek word krino, to pass judgment on the deeds and works of others, krino, and is different from the rule of Christ. So to recap, this promise for the twelve thrones the Lord made for the twelve disciples, or rather to the twelve disciples, is specifically for them and not for other believers. The ruling over the twelve tribes of Israel has in advance presupposed a people that is subjected to the messiah Peter also counted on this future privilege with ruling over the 12 tribes of Israel in the office of overseer that was given by the Lord to the 12 apostles apostles as Judas lost his office see Matthias was chosen in his place So as we read in Acts 1, the verses 20 through 26, I'm only going to read 24 to save time. It says, and they prayed, and the lot fell on Matthias. And he was numbered with the 11 apostles. But no one was chosen to take the place of James, the brother of John, when he was martyred because the office of the 12 disciples was never passed on to anyone else because they were a restricted group, a limited group. They were a special group who literally walked with the Lord and are promised a special place in the kingdom of God. And then there is another promise following. This second promise the Lord Jesus gave to all his disciples who for the Lord Jesus' sake left their homes and land, country, wife, children, parents, jobs, who shall receive a hundredfold reward on top of having eternal life. And there's no doubt, there's no maybe or perhaps about the riches of heaven, and those glorious riches sure will outlast the riches of The rich young man and those like him love so much. And it stands to reason that Christians should remember and be serious about working for a glory blessed reward, just as a college student or any student works for a diploma. In other words, Be serious about it. Don't just dilly-dally in and with our salvation and pass the time sitting and playing with it, but work toward a goal. Show yourself approved. Work toward a goal. And how much better our service would be, and how much better our homes would be, our neighborhoods, our country, if Christians would be working to get the ultimate reward of our leader, the Lord Jesus Christ, when he would say, as recorded in Matthew 25, verse 21, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Thou hast been faithful over a few things. I will make thee ruler over many things. Enter thou into the joy of thy Lord. How marvelous that would be! The Lord Jesus, in his love and care for us, in his generosity, he speaks of a twofold reward for all believers. He speaks of a present-day, hundredfold replacement of family and possessions that has already started in this age with all those who trust God. And on top of that, a future reward of eternal life in the kingdom, which will become a reality in the age to come when our Lord will take his place on his throne of glory. Mark writes about it in his chapter 10, verse 30, in his gospel. It says, he shall receive a hundredfold, now in this time, houses and brethren and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions, and in the world to come, eternal life. And Luke writes the same in his gospel, chapter 18, verse 30. McGee writes, there is to be a reward for those who are saved and have sacrificed things in their life for Jesus' sake. Many an unknown saint of whom the world has not known, like the widow with her widow's might, will be given first place in his presence someday. And McGee continues, In that day, I believe that many outstanding Christian leaders who receive wide acclaim in this life will be ignored, while many unknown saints of God will be rewarded. What a wonderful, what a glorious, wonderful picture This presents to us, he writes. So we see here that all that a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ has gone through or suffered for the Lord's sake will not be forgotten. Although this does not mean and is nowhere in Scripture mentioned that believers can expect to buy a position or a place in heaven because of good deeds. Because in the age to come everything is grace. Those who are prominent in life may not necessarily be first in reward in the life to come. And again the widow who gave her two mites but had nothing else to give may be ahead of those Who have given much and know it so well and are so proud of it. And then again, those who labor only for reward may miss it. It is grace that has brought us here, and any rewards that are ours are all mercies. Verse 29. And everyone that hath forsaken houses or brethren, this is from the lips of the Lord, you can't go any higher than that, everyone that has forsaken houses or brethren or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my name's sake shall receive a hundredfold and shall inherit everlasting life. Yeah, the unbeliever may scoff at all this, but the believer has this hope built in. Let me read 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 17 to you. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. And also 1 Corinthians 15, verse 19. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. And to top it off, 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 12. For the which cause I also suffer these things. Nevertheless, I'm not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed. And am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. In the following verse, verse 30 One word of caution was given by the Lord But many that are first Shall be last And the last shall be first The Lord talked about this in Mark 9 Verse 35 He sat down And he called the twelve and saith unto them, If any man desire to be first, the same shall be last of all and servant of them all. And Matthew 20, the verses 25 through 28, Jesus called his disciples together and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them, not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be your slave, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He bless you.